Good morning. Good to see you all again. So, we're moving into the final stretch of our tour of the Brahmavihara practices. And so this morning I wanted to just give a brief overview of the last one, which is Upekka, or equanimity, which in my own arrangement of the four Brahmaviharas as points of a diamond, equanimity sits on top, at the pinnacle or the summit of the diamond. And it's what arises when we are equally open to the joys and the sorrows of life. And it's also at the top of the diamond because the Pali word upeka literally means to look over. So it's the capacity to see the bigger picture instead of being caught up in our perhaps more usual small and self-centered view of the world. So equanimity has a direct connection with seeing clearly, with insight, with wisdom. And so as an analogy, I sometimes think of it as like climbing up a mountainside. I don't know if you've had that experience when we go on a hike and in the beginning we're slogging through the undergrowth and it's dense and at least in New Zealand sometimes you can only see a few meters in front of you because the forest is so thick. But after a lot of uphill effort, we finally get above the tree line and then we might be able to look out over the whole countryside. And suddenly we can see where we came from in a whole new context. There's openness and expansiveness. And we're not just stuck in our own narrow viewpoint anymore. And for me, that change of perspective feels like a moment of freedom. There's another analogy I sometimes use, and that's to think of equanimity as being like the keel of a boat. And this came from my own experience many years ago when I had the chance to live on board a broken down old wooden sailing boat in Western Australia. And this, a friend and I bought this boat without even seeing it. And it wasn't until we got there that we realized it was more of a wreck than a boat. It was out of the water, propped up in an old boatyard, and it was completely unsailable. And we spent many months fixing it up, repairing it so we could get it sailing again. And one of my jobs in that period was to sand down and repaint this massive lead keel. And the keel weighed about one ton. And at the time I thought that seems like a lot of weight for a pretty small boat. Because the boat was just 10 meters, 30 feet long. But once we finally got the boat launched and in the water, I understood why it needed such a big keel because sometimes the wind and the waves and the sails brought that boat leaning right over into the water. But it was the weight of the keel that stopped us from capsizing. And it was also the keel that allowed us, made it possible to steer the boat, to steer it through the waves and the wind instead of just bobbing about on the surface. So equanimity is like that. Like the boat, all of us are subject to the changing conditions of life, to winds and waves and tides and ocean currents. But equanimity, the keel, is what lets us navigate through them without flipping over or flipping out. And even though at times the conditions, when conditions are strong, we might 
really lean right over, hard over. Thanks to the keel, we don't capsize or sink. So equanimity then has this quality of stability. And I think of it as the capacity to respond rather than to react. And the difference between those is reacting comes from our habitual knee-jerk responses to situations, whereas responding comes from a place of spontaneous wisdom, one that's grounded in all four of the Brahma-Vihara qualities. Now, even though equanimity is very highly valued in the Buddha's teachings, it's generally not something that's highly valued in mainstream society, which might be my might be why equanimity is not a very common word in English these days. It f- sounds slightly old-fashioned, but it's just a word that means balance. And in the context of the Dhamma, it's the heart and mind that are completely at ease. Because when equanimity is developed to its highest capacity, there's no wanting in the mind, there's no not wanting in the mind. There's simply being with what is in a state of deep acceptance, peace. And again, just to acknowledge that in our current times that might sound very challenging, perhaps even completely unrealistic, when there is so much divisiveness and fracturing and polarization in so many communities around the world. But again, it's because of that lack of balance out there that we need equanimity in here more than ever. So we're fortunate that again, like all of these Brahma-Vihara qualities, this is one that we can directly cultivate, that we can train in. And having said that, I also think it's of the four, it might be the most challenging to understand and to practice because it's subtle and it's deep. And as I said, it's not generally valued very much in mainstream society. So I often joke that we generally don't hear people say things like, wow, when my son told me he just reversed over the mailbox in our brand new car, I had so much equanimity. Or, I love to listen to talkback radio because it's such a great workout for my equanimity practice. I've never heard anyone say anything like that. In fact, I don't think it was until I came into contact with the Dharma that I'd even heard the word equanimity. So I'd like to take a little bit of time now to explore more what it is, but also what it isn't. So equanimity is non-reactivity on deeper and deeper levels. But it's not non-responsiveness. So there can be a misperception that equanimity is a kind of a flat, blank, non-responsiveness. And in popular culture, people sometimes talk about someone being very zen. And usually by this, they mean just sitting there in a crisis and doing nothing, which is not true equanimity. That will be more like denial. And on a superficial level, it might sound like equanimity is about shutting down our natural emotional responses. But this is more the near enemy of equanimity. The near enemy qualities being things like indifference, apathy, and disconnection. 
And just to acknowledge that perhaps particularly with equanimity, and again, at least in my own practice, there's a trap that can be quite seductive because it might seem like equanimity gives us relief from all of those afflictive emotions. So especially in the beginning of Dharma practice, sometimes people misuse equanimity as a kind of deluded escapism to try to defend against feeling all of our messy and unpleasant emotions. And we might try to tell ourselves that we're just abiding in equanimity, but actually we're in denial of all of the underlying anger, despair, self-hatred, shame, and so on. So again, that was true for me early in my own practice. And it took a while to be able to distinguish between what we might call fake equanimity and the real thing. Because my intellect was very good at convincing itself that everything was fine. And I was just abiding in equanimity. But in reality, I was suppressing all these different kinds of emotions that I just didn't want to deal with. And in the end, what helped me to get clearer about what was really going on was the body. Because generally speaking, the body doesn't lie. And this is one reason why we put so much emphasis in this practice on body literacy. Because by tuning in to those more refined and subtle sensations in the body, we get clues about what's really going on. And not only in the body, but the heart and the mind too. So one of the key ways of recognizing the difference between real and fake equanimity is its energetic quality. With true equanimity, there's a subtle vibration and warmth, an alive energy, and that's missing when we're in the terrain of the near enemy of fake equanimity. So when I was disconnected and trying to pretend that it was equanimity, when I paid more careful attention, I could feel there was a sense of flatness or numbness, even a a sort of a hollowness. But true equanimity is not deadness, not disconnection, not disengagement. It's a very refined form of responsiveness. It sees clearly what's going on, and it knows an appropriate response. So there's a close relationship between equanimity and wisdom, especially in the understanding of impermanence and each the truth that everything changes. And as I think most of you know, seeing clearly into the truth of impermanence is a key insight in our vipassana or insight practice. However, if we don't have that wise orientation to impermanence, We have a tendency to want to fix things, to fix other people, to fix ourselves. And by fix here, I mean it in both senses of the word. So fix as in to mend or to repair, but also to make fixed, static, unchanging. So a key support for equanimity is being able to let go of this tendency of wanting things to be different, to want them to be permanent if they're pleasant, or to want them to be impermanent if they're unpleasant. 
And one image that's used for this in the context of the suttas is the image of a mountain to convey the steadiness of equanimity. So a mountain stays unmoving no matter what weather systems swirl around it, whether it's wind or rain, snowstorms, thunder, lightning. And in a similar way, the sky is also unaffected by all of those changing weather conditions that move through it. So the sky can be an analogy for our awareness. It simply knows the constantly changing weather conditions without being disturbed by any of them. So in terms of the actual practice of equanimity, again, we can use uh, certain phrases that generally they tend to highlight the truth of impermanence. So here are just a few examples used by Western insight teachers, people such as Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Kamala Masters. So, may I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. That's Jack Cornfield. Sharon Salisbury says, May I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. And Kamala Masters, May I accept and open to how it is right now, because this is how it is right now. So I like uh, Kamala's pointing to this is how it is right now. So she's pointing to the truth that everything changes. So rather than just accepting, okay, this is how it is, with a kind of defeated resignation, we understand, yes, this is how it is right now. And by implication, it will change. Perhaps not in the time frame we would like, but it will definitely change. So I'll be weaving these phrases into the guided meditation that I'm going to offer soon. And we're going to be exploring equanimity as, as a support for our relationship with others. Particularly those people that tend to challenge our equanimity. So we're going to be working with the category of the so-called difficult person. So remembering in the Vasudhimaga instructions, we start with where the Brahma-Vihara comes most naturally, usually oneself, then a benefactor, then a good friend, then a neutral person, and then the so-called difficult person, and then all beings. And so far, we've mostly been working with what we can think of as the easy beings, so our benefactors and good friends. And we've done a little bit of uh, Brahma Vihara practice for ourselves. So this morning I'd like to raise the bar a bit and invite us to work with this difficult person or more accurately a person that we're currently having some difficulties with because we don't want to solidify them as that eternally difficult person. It's just someone that we're currently having challenges with. But when giving the instructions, it would be a bit of a mouthful to say the person that we're currently having some difficulties with every time. So I will use that term, difficult person. But please keep in mind that this is shorthand and it's a fluid categorization. So just a few tips for doing this, because by definition, the difficult person is difficult. They're in that category because we've had some challenges with them. 
some probably unpleasant experiences and interactions. So again, my recommendation is to start with a relatively easy, difficult person, if that's not too much of a contradiction. So find someone where the difficulty is not too intense, and then you can gradually work up towards someone who's been more intensely problematic. And just to say, depending on the circumstances, that process might take years. So remember, we're not trying to force or push or manufacture our responses. We're not trying to blast through our defenses or minimize the truth of any harm that's being done to us. So I really encourage you to go gently. And if at any time the process feels forced or painful, then back up, let it go. You might want to switch to a few moments of self-compassion or kindness or appreciation that you are willing to have given it a go. And then return to mindfulness of breathing come back to balance. So when we work with this difficult person, it might be helpful to remember that hurt people hurt people. And to see if we can find the truth of that in relation to the difficult person. So it's an invitation to drop below the level of perhaps their irritating personality habits and see if we can sense the underlying motivation. It's likely that this person is suffering in some way and their difficult behavior is an unconscious reflection of that. And this might also help bring in compassion if we can acknowledge any pain that the difficult person might be in. So having a sense of humor can also be a huge support for the practice because it helps us to not take things quite so personally. And I like to check because I doubt that there's anybody in this room who doesn't have a difficult person in their lives. But I like to check, is that true? Anybody not have a difficult person that they want to work with just now? I'm not seeing any raised hands, but I'm going to just check that other screen just to make sure. No, so we all have... A difficult person. Even the Buddha had difficult people. He had his cousin, Devadatta, who tried to kill him. So this is just normal and universal. It's a part of being human. So coming back now more specifically to the difficult person we work with today, one area of our lives where many of us do tend to get caught is in relation to the people who are the closest to us. We can have very definite agendas about how our partners should be, or how our family members should be, how our close friends should be, who they should be, how their lives should unfold. And we want them to only be happy, and to only experience pleasure and success. But even the Buddha couldn't change other people's lives for them. So who are we to think that we can control other people? Now, of course, it's natural to want people we're close to to be happy. But if that wish hardens into an expectation of some kind, then it usually causes ourselves and the other person a lot of suffering. So in this next meditation, I'd like to explore equanimity in relation to someone that you care about, but where there's a, some kind of unhelpful agenda 
or some kind of stickiness or some kind of desire to control. So the phrases that we'll be working with are, I care about you, but I cannot live your life for you. Your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes for you. So it's possible when you hear those phrases that somebody naturally pops to mind. Again, on that scale of 1 to 10, I invite you to find someone who's a 5 or less in terms of that difficulty or stickiness and see if you can find someone who's just a little slightly more easy. Okay, I think that's enough to get us started. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.